When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the least international love tennis podcast for a while. I am back in the UK. George Belshaw's back in the UK. Calvin Beton is still in Barnsley. Anna Smith, who joined us for the last two weeks, she is uh, otherwise engaged. We've replaced her with another redhead in George Belshaw, who is fresh from the Cuban mountains. I don't know if I would actually regard you as a redhead, George. Do, do you wear that badge? I definitely used to be. I'm, my hair's kind of darkening over the years. I, I still think I categorically am. But I identify as a ginger. But I've, I've always had very kind of dark features other than my right. red hair. So I've okay. kind of always kind of rocked the mysterious look. All right, comes, very good. Doesn't normally come with it. <laughs> Calvin, what colour was your hair? Uh, <laughs> Calvin used to have old school Agassiz hair back in the day. Um, well, I used to have blonde hair, yeah. Um, oh, wow. That was, um, and it was quite a lot. Well, when I was a kid, I had like, like really white hair like david gower for anyone who um remembers that and curly hair and then i had long hair for a bit and used to did actually used to wear a bandana when i played tennis until um, i wasn't far off basically bandana was sort of rendered um useless uh, (laughs) unnecessary (laughs) yeah uh, first things first, um, we are going to talk about Ukraine uh, and the moving stories of Diana Yastremska, of Novak Djokovic, of Sergei Stokowski. But um, this is a tennis podcast primarily. And while there is loads to talk about with the Ukraine stuff, um, I thought we'd start with lots of the tennis news because there is so much of it as well. Um, I don't think that means that we think it's any less important or less worthy of our time. Um, I know we started with the Ukraine stuff last week, so... Uh, I just wanted to change it up, but I wanted to make it clear that I'm not doing that because I think that the war in Ukraine is less important than even Lendl's return to Andy Murray's box. Uh, It's just one of those things. Uh, As I often say, it's hard to segue from such serious matters to more trivial ones. So um, that is kind of the nature of the beast. So as well as all of that, uh, we'll be talking about the return of Lord Voldemort, or as he is better known, even Lendl, who's back in Andy Murray's box. Uh, Serena Williams has taken aim at the easiest and widest target in tennis, Alexander Zverev, and yet somehow missed. There's good news and bad news for Novak Djokovic. We'll talk about the Indian Wells entry list and who is and more significantly isn't on there. Uh, Plus a title for Leila Fernandez and more news on Roger Federer's injury. Uh, Absolutely loads, but I think the place to start is the unexpected return of Ivan Lendl. His third spell Uh, in charge of Andy Murray's camp. He, of course, uh, first came together with Murray at the end of 2011. He then helped him to Olympic gold, US Open title, Wimbledon title. They then split up again in 2014. He came back. Murray won a Grand Slam title again. And then, of course, uh, his injuries started to catch up with him. Uh, George, I I know you've already said to me that you didn't see this coming. At any point, did you consider that even Lendl might be in the mix? No, not really. Um, I, it feels to me like one of those situations that 
I'm not really sure what the two of them are going to get out of it. And, and that probably seems quite strange, but I think the work environment is going to be so different now in terms of what they can achieve. Like it felt to me that Lendl came in and changed things for Murray. Murray, by the time Lendl came in, was already a world-class tennis player, absolutely brilliant. And the thing he needed was to get over the line in Grand Slam finals. He was all, already there or thereabout. And it was the thing Lendl brought most was this kind of, mental security this belief that he can do it as someone who'd been in the same position of losing a lot of his first grand slam finals and then going and winning uh, multiple slams and that's not to say i don't think lendl provides anything as a coach but i think that's the thing i don't think murray changed dramatically as a player beyond just that belief um if that makes sense so now i'm not really sure how that resets in this moment where murray is still obviously a good tennis player he's been inconsistent but we think the physical problems are probably going to limit what he can actually achieve. Um, so maybe it will just be a case of resetting goals with Lendl, something like that. But I think it's an interesting one because I, I'm not necessarily sure he's what Murray needs right now as a, you know, compared to like maybe a technical coach who would want to teach him a new style perhaps. Um, mm. So it'll be an interesting one to kind of see how that develops. Uh, it should be noted that we understand Murray is looking to bring someone else in as well. Uh, someone who will work closely with Lendl, but I think will travel more. Uh, the plan is to play, obviously, Indian Wells and then uh, Miami. He's then going to have an extended training block out in Florida, which we know is something he's done before and a lot of and enjoys that kind of challenge. He's obviously not playing the clay, I think, at all. Uh, and then we'll get ready for the grass court season with Lendl. Uh, Calvin, you'll have seen back in the day, I'm sure, a bit of uh, Lendl up close and personal, if you like. Um he, is he really just this grumpy, very quiet presence on the court, or is he a bit more than that? Um, from what I've seen, which isn't loads, to be fair, that he's yeah, he's just that. What you said, uh, grumpy, quiet presence um, on the court. He doesn't. I don't think anyone sort of even suggested that he does a whole lot more. I think when Murray brought him in the first time, and then the second time as well, it was basically to it was a mentality thing, um, having that person around the camp when it came to the biggest matches possible, which he obviously helped with, because that's when Murray won all three of his slams when when Lendl was there. Mm. But I don't think he's ever been thought that he brings anything necessarily, especially technical or tactical to the mix. I think it, it's it's all a mentality thing, which, which could suggest either... That it could go one of two ways now, because if it is, it maybe maybe Murray does need a, a a change of mentality or a bump in mentality with with how things are going. He's he's obviously got some issues physically that make it more difficult for him to play. Um, so on that side of things, you can see why he might just be one last push. Right, let's get the guy who's done it before in to to give us that. Um, but then at the same time, you could argue that he probably needs a bit more to change his game than what he's doing at the minute. Um, and needs a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh pair of hands on his game to actually mix things up. And and I don't really think Lendl's going to provide that too much because I don't think that's really what he does. It's really interesting that we've kind of gone from Australia, which was such a massive disappointment um, for Murray, where, you know, despite the fact he got to that final before the slam, you know, the tournaments he really wants to impact and affect, and he had the best draw really he could have hoped for and kind of fell so early. Um, it kind of felt to me then that he was having this kind of classic, oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't I don't know if I can carry on doing this of being frustrated. And now we've moved into an area where it's like, 
all our eggs are in the Wimbledon basket and we're going to do everything. We're going to literally prepare for this one tournament for four months. And Lendl is maybe an extension of that where Murray feels he needs this perfect slam. Wimbledon's the best place it can happen where there's kind of this one shooting stars moment. I, I, that's probably oversimplifying it, but it, it does really feel to me that, that that is the massive goal for Murray. And it'll be really interesting. Obviously, I don't hope this happens, but if it is a massive failure, if he draws Novak first round and loses one, one and one, is is that it for Murray? Is, is everything going into this? And if it goes badly, is that the end? I think it'll be quite interesting to just see how these next few months pan out because, you know, I understand why he didn't want to play the clay, etc. But if Murray really had kind of long-term visions of getting back on the tour, getting his ranking up, it's kind of a bit foolhardy to me to skip out three months of the year, even know all of those clay tournaments um so now i'm almost in kind of is this last hurrah territory it certainly feels like that when when we got the news through on thursday last week and i sort of looked at it well this is a big throw of the dice um it should be noted that murray has been through the coaches in the last i think it's five and five months when you consider that delgado was obviously still in place as recently as december he had Esteban Carril in his corner, uh, Jan de Witt as well. Danny Valverde was working with him a bit over the last um, couple of weeks, I think in February in Europe. Uh, he was splitting his time between Stan Wawrinka, who's on his way back to fitness, uh, and Murray. Uh, I was speaking to someone uh, in the Murray camp and I said, does this mean Danny's not in the mix anymore? And he said, well, yes, at the moment which, you know, I think there is a real feeling within the Murray camp. It wasn't to say that he thought Valverde was coming back. It was just, I don't know, because I don't know what's going to happen next at any point anymore. It feels like, you know, Murray's, I think we've always come to know him to be a little bit of a, not to change with the wind, but he definitely seems to be someone who makes decisions right at the last minute. You know, we know all about going to tournaments really as late as he can make a decision and things like that. Um, and I just wonder whether that has gone into overdrive now and you're seeing all these different coaches in, they come in two weeks, doesn't work, don't like it, move, change, got to change. It, it does smack of desperation, doesn't it, Calvin? Um, yeah, it, it's like you say, it's kind of one of those, it's, it's what he's always done, but also that doesn't mean it's it's ideal. Um, I think what was standout for me was that when he played in, was the last one Doha when he lost to um, uh, Batista Ragu, or was it Dubai? Uh, Dubai. Yeah, Dubai. That was the first time since his, since I guess in the last 18 months, really, 12 months maybe, that I thought that he there was genuine resignation in his expression and in his demeanour, like where he thought, yeah, this is just not happening anymore mm-hmm. um and it'd be interesting to see if or to know if he did think that or oh, that was just the way that it would look you can look that way when you're losing when you're getting hammered anybody can but with him he's normally a bit different he didn't even seem that angry or anything during that match it was all yeah this is where i am now and mm-hmm. i hope it's not and i'm not saying that's not my opinion per se but that's what it looked to me like what he was thinking and i think once once resignation sets in, then you've got a problem, mm. um, I think. George, is this starting to feel like the beginning of the end? Yeah, I think so. I, I, 
as I said before, I, I, I just think how Wimbledon goes will totally <laughs> dictate how his career will it, goes. Will it, though? I mean, if, if he gets, let's say if he has a run similar to last year, where he has a couple of great matches, dramatic wins over players he should be smashing, and then loses to the first half-decent guy, really, who he came up against, it, 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 would that be enough to sort of keep him going? I don't think so. I, I think this decision is going to be bigger than just the results at Wimbledon. I think, yeah, I mean, there's so many different factors with it because I think, if, as I said, you know, if he drew Novak round one and got pumped, would he want that to be his last match, his kind of final memory? Don't know. You know, there's so many kind of things when these guys step off the court. You know, we think about Federer last year. Was that his last set at Wimbledon, him getting tanked six love by Hubert Hercats? You know, you kind of think, oh, Roger would love to <laughs> come back and at least not be bageled in the final set, the place he'd love most. You know, that that's a great possibility with Murray if he played someone like Djokovic. Djokovic would just go straight through him these days. Um, mm. I've watched them play practice sets before and it's it's not pretty. Like mm. He's lucky to have avoided Djokovic over the last two years. Um, again, you know, on the on the flip side, if he somehow managed to scrape his way to the quarterfinals, would, he, would that suddenly change uh, a light switch in his head where he's like, oh man, I can compete at this level. I want to carry on. Or is it like, well, there's a quarterfinal. That's quite a nice way to go. I've had a good run. This is good. It's really hard to say. Um, so, yeah, I think the only thing I would draw a conclusion on in my classic fence-sitting way is that this Wimbledon is massive for him and he's built it up to be something massive in his head. Which way it goes in terms of it being a deflationary or inflationary process, uh, we have to wait and see. Um what about if what about that situation, George? If Djokovic hasn't played a match between now and then, <laughs> well, he can play the French now, can't he? Oh, can he? Has that changed? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's on our agenda. Okay. Yes. As news yet to come, yet to be broken to the people who broken prematurely. Yeah, there must be some. I don't know whether I don't know whether there are some of you out there who only the only tennis news outlet is the Love Tennis Pod and won't That's yet know. That's been me. This. That's been me for the last. Three weeks, honestly. This is because you've just been in the mountains. I just had no internet, so it took me ages <laughs> to download this. So I only actually listened to the other episodes um, two days ago, and that was probably like a week out of date. That's how didn't... I feel because I went to China right at the end of the January transfer window and didn't watch any football while I was there because I couldn't. I come back and like there's a lad playing up front for Spurs I have never heard of, and he's <laughs> and he's like he's played every game, and I really don't know who he is. That's uh, right. I'm you. going to Spurs tonight and I have acquainted myself with Kusilek. I still can't say his name, but anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, let's move on. Well, we await with interest Andy Murray's uh, next move. He is, of course, the, the draw for Indian Wells is later on today. So you, you will be able to see it if you look for it. I think it's at uh, 11 p.m. Monday night UK time. So you'll be able to find it. Uh, but next, I want to talk about this from Serena Williams. There is absolutely a double standard. I would probably be in jail if I did that, like literally, no joke. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was I was actually on probation once. <laughs> I'm like, well, what did I ever do to get probation? Serena Williams there talking to CNN about the Alexander Zverev incident where he wrapped a racket around the umpire's chair. He's currently still under investigation for that. Uh, she claimed, as you heard, that there were double standards. She would have gone to jail uh, and she says, I was actually on probation once. Uh, just for the record, uh, she was on probation because she said to a line judge, I swear to God, I'll fucking take the ball and shove it down your fucking throat. So just to sort of 
correct her what did i ever do to get on probation that 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 was what she did to get on probation uh, anyone who remembers that 2009 outburst a uh, little bit of revisionism there calvin i know you've got strong views on this serena williams has she got a point would she have received different treatment no it, it's it's a nonsense like she's still and we know that every time she opens her mouth on stuff like this it's not about the bigger picture of like how black athletes are treated or things like that. She's specifically talking about the 2018 US Open and the match where she got defaulted. Yeah. And she got defaulted for three for a cumulative accumulation of three code violations, none of which could be debated. Yeah. They weren't even opinions in those situations. So her saying if I if did she say if she'd have done that then she'd have yeah. been thrown in prison. Yeah. yeah. This stuff, if, if she'd have been done that, she'd have been thrown in prison. That's just a nonsense. What, what would have happened is she, if she'd have done that, she'd have got the same treatment as Alex Verev got, which was yeah. exactly correct. She'd have been defaulted from the tournament. She would then have said in a press conference that if Alex Verev or someone like that would have done it, he wouldn't have been defaulted. Yeah. That's exactly what would have happened. There's no, she's trying always trying to make out that there's some gray areas. And I think as we said in our WhatsApp group, I'm absolutely certain that Serena Williams has had some discrimination against her and quite a bit of it in the past, being that she's a black female. Um, but these incidents aren't part of that discrimination. The yeah. rules of tennis for code violations are pretty definitive. And she got defaulted when she broke three of them. And Alex Verev got defaulted when he broke one of them, which you can't do. Uh, for, just for the rest, she, she, she got docked a game in that US Open final, which it was, was it yeah. the last game or the penultimate yeah. game it gave, gave Osaka to serve for the match? But um, yeah. it, the, the point stands, you know, it's an irrelevance, really. Um, Alexander Zverev, just to, to clarify, I spoke to the ATP about this last week. Uh, there is a set protocol for this. The senior vice president of rules... Um, a guy called a guy whose name I can't pronounce again, but I will get it in front of me. For fear of getting it wrong, I will get it in front of me. Um, so he will conduct an investigation, which I'm told could take a couple of weeks. Uh, I don't really understand what that investigation will actually look like because what is there to investigate? Uh, I suspect it's probably sitting down with the lawyers and deciding what they think they can actually do to Alexander Zverev. He is registered to play Indian Wells. Uh, we'll probably play that nevertheless. He played in the Davis Cup this weekend for Germany, which is something he has done very little of in his career. I think he's only played five ties since he made his debut six years ago. He beat the Tiagos, Montero and Saboth Wild uh, in pretty comprehensive fashion. It was on clay in Rio. It's a 6,000-mile journey from where he was in the States. It wasn't convenient. He wasn't doing it because he's decided he wants to represent his country anymore. Surely, George, he was doing it to try and kind of sweep all this under the carpet. Well, he didn't do a very good job if he wasn't. I mean, he's kicked off at the crowd claiming he was being abused <laughs> straight afterwards. If he, if he was doing it just to keep a vaguely low profile, it seems he brought about more headlines than he had before. I mean, just, just halfing back slightly to the previous one, I mean, th there's been other examples of players doing what Zverev did. I suppose Karolina Pliskova was quite a good example where she was, remember, I can't remember what match that was, I think it was in Rome, somewhere she, where she actually just took aim at the umpire's chair. That might have been after losing rather than a DQ. You had Nick Kyrgios lobbing a chair onto the court, which 
It always seems to happen on clay, doesn't it? A lot of this stuff. I know, there was <laughs> Very frustrating there, surface. You get it all in your fingernails and stuff. <laughs> um, but that was against Casper Ruud, I think. Um, possibly at Rome again, actually. Um, but yeah, you know, as Calvin says, you know, the, none of these things haven't ended in disqualification and some <laughs> some form of punishment. So I'm, I'm pretty sure the same will come down the line for Zverev. And yeah, I was surprised to see like, the Davis Cup, really, as, as you mentioned. You know, he's been really critical of the competition uh, since it was reformatted. Um, I don't really see what the appeal to play this time now is just before um, he's about to go to Miami and Indian Wells, etc. So it doesn't really make sense to his schedule per se. But it's, it, I suppose it's good to have these guys out there, even though we're you know not exactly Zara's number one fans. You know, it's broadly positive for the top ranked male players to be playing in the top ranked team competition because as we've possibly come on to that that didn't happen for all the teams no exactly George you're right um yes it was nice to see the name Alexander Zverev out there uh, doing his job for Germany they won 3-1 they didn't play the final uh, tie Kim Kravitz and Tim Puitz they are they, you know um I can't remember which way around it is one of them's played eight Davis Cup ties and one's played seven and they're both unbeaten. Like they've never lost a doubles match, those two, in Davis Cup. It's, you know, if Zverev does play Davis Cup, Germany are a serious threat because he's obviously very good. Jan Leonard Struth, as we know, is someone who's not easy to play and in indoor environments is particularly potent. And then you've got this great doubles team. So he could, you know, and I know I, I was speaking to a couple of people um, in German tennis over the last couple of weeks uh, about Zverev and there is a very conscious uh, effort in Germany. You know, he's hired this uh, crisis comms uh, company in New York to help sanitize his image. And one of the things they want to do is be more popular in Germany, where as far as I can tell, Zverev actually isn't the kind of rock star that he should be. Now, there are obviously reasons for that. He has an ongoing ATP investigation into domestic abuse allegations against him. Um, he is also quite a difficult guy to like a lot of the time, I think. But if it means that he ends up playing a bit more Davis Cup, then I don't know what the opposite of a, a kind of silver lining is. But, uh, you know, it's it's a very small crumb of comfort. As you say, George, not all the top players did play. The kind of most significant Davis Cup result this weekend was uh, Canada, the world champions, being beaten by Netherlands. A shock around everyone, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but not when I tell you that the two singles players for Canada were Steve Diaz and Alexis Galanau. I'm sorry if I've butchered the pronunciation of <laughs> Alexis Galanau, um, but that is the first time I've ever read his name uh, because he is currently the world number 320. Uh, so probably a downgrade on Felix Allegrelosim and Denis Shapovalov, uh, to say the least. In fairness, it was held in The Hague in, Euro in Europe on clay indoors, if you're Felix Elgrelliasim or Denis Shapovalov and you're preparing for the Sunshine Swing in Indian Wells and Miami, Calvin, surely it makes absolutely no sense to go to the Netherlands for a week and play on clay and try and beat Talon Griexpor. Yeah, this has always been the problem that the Davies Cup had when it was in its old format of the home and away ties. Um, and really the only argument I could find against it that 
they would often try basically what countries I guess in now will try and do again. And what they always used to try and do was look at the other team and then find what the worst possible surface for that team would be. Mm. So even in that situation, they could think, right, well, the, the two lads in Indian Wells are not going to turn up if we put it on indoor clay. Yeah. Um, so you could do that, which kind of make kind of is counterproductive for the Davis cup overall, mm. isn't it? Unless you've got a country that are desperate to win it, but China have, already won it so oh no they've not won the davis cup have they uh, sorry not china canada they haven't won the the ATP davis cup, cup have they yeah they're the atp champions yeah yeah the big the, one the prestigious <laughs> atp cup <laughs> yeah um but um yeah it'd be disappointing for them because it's knockout i assume is it yeah yeah um, it's qualifying yeah. round for the finals that's that yeah, so then you look and you think, well, this is not ideal because we're already a, they would have been one of the favourites when it comes yeah. later on in the year, and they're not there because of some weird scheduling and weird surface choices. That, um, and all due respect to the Netherlands, I don't think anybody will be heading to wherever it is to watch the Netherlands play. Yeah, I mean, it's, I said this to James before we kind of came on air. I mean, it, it does make the wild cards as well look a bit ridiculous now that the ATP Cup champions aren't even going to be at the finals of the Davis Cup within the same calendar year. I mean, it's just, we, we, we kind of said, we remarked that, um, you know, it was we said at the time, Britain getting a wild card for this was a bit ridiculous, like in terms of some of the other teams who are out there and, and the quality they've got. Canada, you'd have thought, would have been one of the top choices for a wild card and avoids this sort of thing happening. They, they, they would bring something to the competition. If you think about the teams who can win it, we mentioned Germany there. We know how strong Russia, uh, they're not going to be Russia, but whoever they are, by the time they get there, they're going to be strong. Spain are going to be strong if they get Nadal out and Alcaraz. But, you know, I mean, Ru- Russia, for the record, are currently banned. Are they, but they're an ITF as... event. So they can't even compete as Russian Tennis Federation. They are oh, banned. They, okay, so they're totally out. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that actually creates a kind of interesting point because yeah. it means that there is now a gap in the Davis Cup final schedule. Um, so it's possible. Oh, so they could come in then, yeah. To be well, I, it would be a bit rogue to just throw, but you've you know they've got to fill the gap somehow, and it would be obvious to to fill it. That with would be Canada. the choice, wouldn't it? ATP and, Cup champions. It'd be I mean, fair. frankly, it would be a much more logical move than giving Great Britain a wild card. I mean, <laughs> you know, with the greatest of respect to. Cam Norrie and Dan Evans and Liam Brody, you know, I, I like all of them. They're good players, but they're, they're not going to, they're not big draws. It's not like giving Serbia a wild card so you get Djokovic. I can't really understand it. They um, also, Canada, by the time we get there, could well have end up with two of the top 10 players in the world. Hmm. Um, and you've basically just left them. They'd be, they'd be second favourites, I think, behind, um, behind Spain, with Russia not being there. You'd have to make if if everyone was playing, you'd have to make Canada second favourites, wouldn't you? Yeah, they're, they're probably just there, lacking then. a really strong doubles pair, which as we know. But both of those Germany. guys play doubles as well, though. Felix yeah. and Shapovalov both they don't play together, but um, they both do play regular doubles. Hmm. We shall see. Um, let's move on. George, did you did you put your finger up in the air there, or did I miss see it? Sorry, no, I was just itching my ear. Are you having oh, your niche ear? Okay, yeah. George, George, George's scratchy ear. That's not on the agenda, but I'll maybe add it in later. Uh, speaking of Serbia, some good news for Novak Djokovic, as previewed earlier by George Belshaw. Uh, they are relaxing their vaccine passport scheme. It should be noticed that noted that they're doing it on the fourteenth of March, 
the day before their presidential election. So I think it's quite clear why they're doing that uh, in an effort to uh, placate voters. It means that you now won't need a vaccine passport to do anything in France except visit a care home. That may eventually change as well. Crucially, it means if you want to come to the country and play a Grand Slam tennis tournament and you haven't been vaccinated, you will be able to. Uh, George, this is obviously good news for Novak Djokovic. Is there anything more to add? Uh, the other thing that's mildly good, I suppose, is that it means he'll get a warm-up tournament as well, at least, on clay. So he can go to Monte Carlo. I'm, I'm not really sure of the status of the other countries at the minute. Um, I know he's struggled to get into Italy, for sure. Yeah. Um, so Spain, would it be all right there for Madrid? Not really. Doubt it. I haven't really followed that at the minute. Um, but that, that, it is quite so, hard to keep up with all of the COVID all regulations, the <laughs> all of the countries, especially um, given that we are all in the UK where we've abolished COVID. Exactly. It doesn't it's exist. great that it doesn't exist anymore. It makes my life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's obviously good news for him. The the less good news, I suppose, is the split with Marion Vida, which has not exactly led to much success <laughs> in the past. Um, it's kind of the opposite of Murray's move in terms of let's try something that we're, we're hoping will work that has decidedly not worked before. Um, but... I'm quite baffled by that because, as you say, Marion Vider is a bit like uh, Lendl to Murray. Good things happen when he is around, and I don't think any of us saw it coming. And um, Just to give you Novak Djokovic's statement on it, he said, Marion has been by my side during the most important and most memorable moments of my career. Together, we've achieved some incredible things, and I'm very grateful for his friendship and dedication over the last 15 years. While he might be leaving the professional team, he will always be family, and I can't thank him enough for all he has done. Um, there appears to be no bad blood, really. Uh, Vida said some similarly very generous things about Djokovic. Says, I look back on our time together with immense pride. He's very thankful for the success, remain his biggest supporter on and off the court, look forward to new challenges. Now, he's only 56. I, I, there may be lots of other things at play here, but they haven't been shared with us, so we can only assume that this is, you know... A, a tactical or deliberate substitution, Calvin. I mean, it's not as though Djokovic's game has been in trouble. It doesn't feel like he needed to make any changes. And we know that he's not someone who likes change either. No, um, I find it a bit odd, to be honest. I can't really see any logical reason why they've done it, which makes me think that something has gone on. Some sort of argument or disagreement has taken place uh, with which one of them didn't agree on. I, I don't want to speculate on what that might be. I don't have any real opinions on what it might be but it doesn't make any sense at all for it to happen he's always had Vida as his coach when he's been successful and Vida has always been um Djokovic's coach so it's not like there's other business interests or anything that you could think he may want to take up um mm. and let's you know let's be honest it's like if he comes back and he's still playing the same he's looking at a piece in history so I don't I don't know why Vida would have stepped aside if it was his choice and Djokovic has his own, he'll have his own reasons as to why it's happened, but I find it really odd. There was some stuff previously when he stepped away that they were trying to spin as Vida wanting to spend less time on tour and have more time with his family. Um, There's also another kind of interesting tidbit. I don't know if this is a totally unverified quote, I'm afraid, that I saw on Twitter. Excellent. Love unverified here. quotes. <laughs> so put, put a big bubble around that. But I saw some quotes from Vida. From apparently from Vida about um, 
how he'd been opposed to Novak's Olympics participation last year, which I found <laughs> quite interesting, where he'd kind of said he didn't think it was a good move for him to play at the Olympics um, and felt he should focus purely on the Grand Slams and that the emotional and toll of the Olympics then affected him so badly in the US Open and kind of all the wheels went off. I mean, um, he was right. Like, let's face it, the Olympics was a disaster for Djokovic. It absolutely knackered him. He didn't win it. And as you say, the wheels very much started to come off after that. So maybe Marion Vida is actually the most psychic person in the Djokovic camp. At the, at the same time, though, I, in fairness to Djokovic, he did have a shot at a golden slam at the time. Yeah. And that would have been a big step away to go, I'm just not going to bother doing it. Yeah. Like, in the same year, he could have had golden slam and become the, the highest ever Grand Slam winning player of all time male do we um do we think novak comes into the french open as the favorite i think you guys last week said you thought nadal was the favorite for the french so maybe that's the wrong question but but now novak definitely can play how, how does that look to you in terms of nadal versus novak calvin i'll defer um, to you so that i can contradict you uh, i no i don't think he does unless you don't it's hard to tell on that isn't it because i don't know whether he plays some of the clay events first if he gets a few of those in and he's tearing it up, then you might say fair, but we don't know if he's going to be able to go in the other countries. He's going to play Rome and Monte Carlo and stuff like that. So he um, can get in Monte Carlo. Right, okay. I guess then you have to wait. You can't say now whether he's favourite because we don't know what, what form he's in. Um, I would say that he probably... I mean, it's difficult because Nadal is in such stellar form and such good shape. You know, he really just looks unbeatable and he's obviously going on to his best surface and his best tournament. So I would probably still stick by Nadal. Um, I think he also matches up better with like some of the other guys, potentially. Um, I'm thinking Medvedev, uh, Tsitsipas. Uh, obviously, there's going to be no Dominic team. Uh, well, there may be Dominic team, but we don't know what form he will be in. So I would probably stick by Nadal. What do you think, George? Yeah, I'd probably lean to Nadal at the minute. But I mean, it's, it's interesting, I think, because Djokovic really did seem to just find Nadal's number last year. I know there's a lot of talk about this kind of foot issue again, but the level Djokovic was at last year was so good. And that if we came in with that Djokovic versus this Nadal, it, it, it would be a pretty magical match. But mm. um yeah, as you say, who knows where team's going to be. Probably not in the mix, realistically. Zverev, I think, will fancy his chances. Um, really? Med- Medvedev won't. Sissipas, maybe not quite there. The oh, you say Zverev fancies his chances. I think you're right. I think Zverev will fancy his chances and Medvedev won't. And Medvedev will go much better than Zverev does because... Medvedev is perhaps has a more realistic view on his I'd, own. I'd, I'd have I'd have Zverev as third favorite for the French at the minute. Really, a bold choice. Hmm. Okay, Zverev will he'll, he'll no doubt win Madrid again because the conditions are perfect, for perfectly him. suited to. Um, and then we'll we'll hype it up more. He'll hit two first serves every match, and nobody will be able to cope with the altitude like he can, and hmm. he'll ramp it up. But actually, I, I might have him. Third favorite, very very distant third favorite. Very distant third, but third favorite nonetheless. At the having said that, if 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 Zverev played Alcaraz in like the fourth round, who you have in that? Yeah, I mean that's a good point. I mean Alcaraz is playing so well at the minute that 
he'll feel he can take anyone out. Um, the draws always. I think with the French more than any of the other tournaments, I think it's so important for for this one. Like I've always said, if Nadal had to go through team and Djokovic at the same one where they're both fully fit and firing, that that would be a, a monumental achievement. It's yeah. not ever really happened that way. And Alcaraz will be less of a floater this year because he'll be a top 16 seed. So you'll be able to avoid him until the latter stages. I think he's now 18 and he's going to be 18 in the world next week, I think. So he will be yeah, a slightly less dangerous floater. Unlike Lorenzo Mazzetti, who is sitting down at 75 in the world and obviously loves the clay. So maybe he's the uh, floater we should be looking out for. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about Dominic Team, Ash Barty, Nick Kyrgios in our Indian Wells preview. Uh, we'll discuss Leila Annie Fernandez's second WTA title. And we'll also look at that man, Roger Federer, who's given us more news on his injury. We're just a few days away from Indian Wells, which is strange to say, given that the last one only finished four months ago. But uh, here we are. Cam Norrie will be the shortest reigning Indian Wells champion of all time, unless he can defend his title in the next couple of weeks. Uh, One man who certainly won't be there is Dominic Team. He said that he's not going to play Indian Wells or Miami because of his ongoing uh, wrist and hand problems. He says he's pretty much there. Um, but would rather start his comeback on the clay. I think we're pressing on to 10 months now since we last saw him play an extended time. I'm not sure there is much more to say. I know that we've said almost every week uh, for the last month that we're looking forward to him coming back and we're worried that he's not. But um, yeah, fingers crossed to see him on the red dirt. Uh, Ash Barty has also withdrawn from Indian Wells, saying that her body has not recovered in the way that she wanted it to. Uh, It's also notable that she moved into a house that she's been planning and building for the last 18 months and basically hasn't picked up a racket since the Australian Open. Uh, Any concern there, George, that that is her kind of attitude to things? Are we we seeing a new form of Ash Barty's career? Um, It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I I was kind of thinking it was quite similar to Halep after she'd won the French Open and it felt like quite a big mental emotional release for her a tournament she really really wanted and then said she wasn't mentally ready for Wimbledon and kind of struggled I know Navratilova was one of the kind of vocal critics of Halep there where she was like well that's not the attitude of a champion you know the the real champions win a tournament and then think on to the next one um obviously for Barty Australia there's a bigger gap to the French Open so I think in many ways the fact she's kind of not played much in the hardcore period doesn't really make sense to necessarily rush into Miami and Indian Wells. Um, I don't have many issues with her taking a bit of time off after that. And she doesn't really need the points seeing as she's just won another slam. Um, And I don't really worry about her from a technical perspective because she's such a good athlete, such a good natural sports person that I think she'll just kind of, pick things up and she would still be comfortably my favorite for the French Open and probably Wimbledon as is um but it'll be interesting to see when she comes back whether she hits the ground running etc but yeah not too many concerns um just for now it's strange isn't it because we always think of the tennis season being January to December but when you actually talk to a lot of players they don't see it that way I know for example um the British guys both Cam and Dan was sort of looking at the Australian Open as the culmination of uh, part of their season and that they would take some time off after that and, and then do a pre-season and, 
and treat the season in that way. So I do wonder whether she has looked at it like that. And especially for, you know, for the Australians, but particularly for Barty, the Australian Open is the culmination of their season. You know, it's not this tournament that happens three weeks into the season. It's the most important tournament of their year. So it would make sense for her to take some time off. And as you say, she's someone that we know can do this. Um, Calvin, it's pretty unusual. And I, I suppose maybe in years gone by, you would see players more likely to dip in and out of the game in the same way, or or is that something that has actually changed and that players, this is not some, this is a new thing is what I'm trying to say. Or I would think of like when we watched that VS documentary, he was playing like 40 tournaments a year and winning them. I mean, is this just new tennis that <coughs> players don't play that often? I think it's a problem more in the women's game than the men's because, the, because of the way the ranking system works in the, the the slams that the, the ranking system is heavily weighted towards the slams so you can have you can have three good slams and you can maintain whatever your ranking is basically and i think they need to resolve that some way and the rankings need to be more representative of actually what is happening year round um i actually looked at the female rankings this morning and they're still a bit all over the shop we thought we'd kind of got somewhere with them but like do we really think that pliskova is the seventh best player in the world mm. i don't um and then that kind of thing so and that not just to pick on her you know it's like uh Svontek, the f- number four and I, I really rate Svontek, but she hasn't it's now been well over a year since she won a slam um yeah. and it, it's just and, and then osaka's like what 25 or whatever she is and it's like there's no way that whenever she comes back that osaka's the 25th best player in the world it's uh, so i think it's like it, it's more i don't necessarily blame the players but the WTA need to sort out their ranking system because it allows this thing to happen. And Serena Williams did it for years. Serena Williams, Serena and Venus would go through a spell. Then Venus started playing a load more, but for a period in their peak, Serena would play about eight tournaments a year. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point there because I think if we think about the men's rankings right now, we probably do think the top four are the best four players in the world. And that, that's yeah. kind of been the case really for the last 20 years maybe i mean mm. it's been the odd time where like a nadal or federer or djokovic injuries seen them drop down but they've been pretty consistently up there murray's been up there and then you've got guys like del potro vavrinka nishikori guys like that who are the kind of the runners behind always kind of sticking around there so i don't think we've had that in the women's game for at least the last five years maybe i know we had a bit of a period where osaka and barty were one and two and that was kind of the, the closest it's been to the players we probably all consider to be the best two players in the world kind of dominating the rankings. But I don't think there's been that set five where I thought, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense because I think they're the five best female players out there right now. Look, you've got somebody at 13 who's had three good weeks. And like, hmm. does, does anybody think that, you know, does anybody think that Emma Raducanu is the 13th best tennis player in the world at the minute? Yeah. And it, it's and I think that's what I'm talking about, where they're so heavily weighted on that that it, it doesn't make any sense. And again, we come round to it. We're getting into that sort of snooker stage. I think snooker's changed it now, but snooker only used to for years only did the system where they changed the rankings once a year. Yeah, and it just made no sense. And and I think it's not that bad. But if the if the if the w, if the women's tennis wants to grow, it needs their best players playing the big events. And I'm not saying I'm being quite an advocate of not having so many women's events, but Indian Wells is probably the fifth biggest tournament of the year. Yeah, You've, you've got to have those players playing it. 
Mm. Um, just on on the the women's rankings being slightly odd and and creating weird you know systems. Uh, Zhang Shui, who won the title in Leon uh, this week, jumped twenty three places or twenty nine places in the world rankings into forty one, which for winning quite a small tournament in France doesn't seem remotely right to me. I think. I think as well. Like the one that I'm just looking at them now, actually, and the one that that sums up how odd the women's rankings are is that last year we had a debate that Maria Sakari was definitely one of the top 10 players in the world. And she was always seemed to be ranked about 18. Hmm. That was about like sort of last, last summer, I guess that that was the case. And now she's number six and she's definitely not playing anything like number six in the world. Now (laughs) it's like, they're just not representative of where players are. Yeah. Yeah. They seem to be, seem to be old. Sorry, George, I cut across you earlier. I was just going to say, I mean, the, the the rankings have often been quite a source of debate among the players. And then Nadal was always really keen for like a two-year ranking system, which to me sounds like it just exacerbates the problem. Yeah, it makes it worse. <laughs> I mean, but what it, it needs to be, it should be a, a sliding scale of recency so that, you know, the tournaments that you've played in the last month should get extra weighting beyond the tournaments that you played 11 months ago you know, so that it should be a sliding scale. I mean, I, I also think that we should work on ELO rankings, which are for people yeah. who play chess, they'll be familiar with that system. George. For, for that can... system there, would you not then have like all the clay quarters, just top seeds at Wimbledon? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like Ralph Ramos Vinolas just suddenly like becoming a top 10 seed at Wimbledon because he's been so good recently. You know, they, they actually, tennis has, tennis has a ranking system. The UTR number is the most complete ranking system that you can imagine because it takes into account, takes into account both, play where you've got in tournaments and the players you've got to beat to win those tournaments and how how tough the matches were whether it was five sets and three sets and if you look i, I guarantee you it's, it's not easy to get because you have to pay for access to it but if you look at the actual utr rankings they 100 will give you a representative ranking of where everyone is mm. and that I, I think there was one a few years ago where it was the one where, like, I think Zverev was ranked four, but it was he had a, an even worse record against the top ten players than he does now. Yeah. Whereas at the same time, um, Del Potro was on his sort of comeback, but coming from nothing, and the UTR actually had Del Potro, I think, ranked four in the world, and Zverev was ranked about twelve, mm. and it was just much made much more sense than what what we have. It, it's not difficult to get together. You'd think not, and 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 the thing is that that there are sports out there that do do this as well uh, i actually think the snooker system as it works now is pretty good uh as you say calvin it used to be completely outdated uh, almost but the second it was written down but it does now have like a more sort of prize money and importance of event uh weighting which seems to be quite quite reflective i really like the idea of having an elo rating ranking which basically gives you a score for every match it's like chess if you beat someone who's very good you get more points for that win if you beat someone who's not very good you don't get points for that um interestingly by the way um and credit to tennisabstract.com who keep this up and i absolutely love jeff's website it's probably my most used website um the top 10 in the elo rankings it's pretty much as you'd expect Djokovic, medvedev zverev nadal number five carlos alcaraz that's how that's not only how well he's been playing but who he's been beating the type of players he's been beating 
Um, interestingly, that Andre Rublev is down at 10 in those as well. I think he's eight in the world at the moment or seven in the world. So, um, and Jensen Brooksby's right up there as well at 16, incidentally. The, Sorry, George. The, the other thing I really like about Jeff Tool is like his picking out of the peak age of yeah. the athlete. I think that's really interesting. So, like, you've got Djokovic, 28.8, Medvedev's peaked at 25.9. He's 26.0 now, by the way. Yeah. Um, Zverev's, he's peaking for his career. Nadal peaked at 22.9, apparently, which in terms of age, as in uh, the age of 22. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty mad, like as a peak. But I feel like there's been a big plateau for Nadal at a very high level. He peaked and then, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's still good. But it's (laughs) funny that that is like he was that good at 22 when everyone else is like a lot higher, basically. Yeah, Uh, for sure. Yeah. So if I can, like the universal tennis ranking I'm looking at now is, um, yeah, it's pretty similar, but Alcaraz is six on that. Interesting. Um, Sinner is seven. Norrie's nine. Felix is ten. So, yeah, That's I mean, I think, it's, I think it's fair enough. Norrie's a top ten player, then. We should change the name of the podcast this week. <laughs> yeah. Norrie cracks the top ten. Yeah. And, and presumably, that's a prediction that we all said would never happen on several occasions. Um <laughs> Let's move on. As, as I always say, it's hard to segue uh, into more serious things. Um, we've obviously got lots of tennis coming up over the next few weeks, um, but we know that an undercurrent to all of it will be what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, just Even just looking at the rankings, you're reminded of it because the likes of Anastasia Pavlichenkova and Viktoria Azarenka and Andrei Rublev and even Daniil Medvedev don't have the Russian or Belarusian flag next to their name. That is one of the sanctions that's been imposed on them in tennis is not to be able to represent Russia or represent um, in any way to use their anthems or anything like that. It's been um, a difficult month or so for so many of these players, none really less so than Diana Yastremska, who got to the final in Lyon. Probably, I mean, you know, great for Shui Zhang to pick up a tournament win at the age of 33, but there can't have been many less popular winners <laughs> Uh, than her in Leon this week because I think the whole world was willing on Diana Stremska who donated her runners-up prize money to uh, the cause as well, which was obviously, I guess, for her a no-brainer, but nevertheless a, a significant show of generosity. I was thinking about this when I was writing the agenda that the idea that a Yastremska win would have been massively popular about six months ago is like <laughs> the world has flipped upside down. I mean, like the last, the three stories she's had where she's kind of hit the headlines. The first one was when she blackfaced. So yeah. that obviously was intensely unpopular. The next one was her failing a drugs test, which she did eventually kind of overturn in the the uh, murky courts that come with it. Am I right um, in saying... Um, now George, suddenly you, it's like a shocking word. You can't call that murky. I mean, it's just such obvious libel. Um, well, am I right in saying that she claimed that someone she was sleeping with had been using the substance? It was certainly a contaminated thing. I can't remember the exact context. I think it was sexual, as I recall. Yeah. We could write up there um, with a Richard Gasquet excuse. But anyway, not what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Still the it's gold just, standard. It's just, quite, it's just quite funny how uh, popularity suddenly flicked. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, what she went through before, kind of joking aside, um, was pretty terrible and awful. And it's ongoingly terrible and awful for her. Um, so to kind of channel that in a positive way i know she kind of came up short but yeah it was a quite a powerful thing i think 
to kind of represent her country in that way. Um, mm. so. It's kind of wild, isn't it, to, to think, I, I guess it's just like anyone else going to work, but somehow it's not. Because A, tennis is an intense job, and B, because you're going out there with your national flag on the screen and because you are representing your country and because you are in the public eye, it is somehow more intense to do it while you know your parents are back home in real danger and and the rest of it. Uh, it's it's pretty impressive, really. Uh, we should also say pretty impressive uh, from Novak Djokovic this week. Uh, you will remember, as I mentioned last week, that Sergei Stokowski uh, has swapped his tennis racket for an assault rifle and has joined up incredibly he's headed back to the ukraine to defend his country quite frankly which i mean again it still kind of baffles me that we're saying these words in the 21st century uh he posted on instagram this week uh an exchange between himself and novak Djokovic um that they had had on on whatsapp which again you know that's amazing to be whatsapping from the front line of a war uh, it's kind of surreal to say it um, in which Djokovic basically said, you know, how are you? Uh, what's going on? Are you in the battlefield? Can you let me know how I can send any help, financial help, whatever I can do? Um, I appreciate that these are just words, but nevertheless impressive for, for Novak to be kind of doing these things. Calvin, I know you're a huge Novak Djokovic apologist, so you'd be the first to, to jump on this uh, jump on this bandwagon. Um, yeah, I've not seen the message, so I don't really know what... Um... I say, I'll, I'll read it. So I'll read it. I'll read it to you. I literally, uh, he okay. says, Stacker, how are you, man? Are you on the field thinking of you, hoping all calms down soon? Uh, please let me know what would be the best address to send help, financial help, any other help as well. Uh, and then uh, the stack replies. So, I mean, you know, it, it's, I think I see it a lot on social media inevitably because of, we, we know what Novak Djokovic fandom is like on social media. And it, they constantly talk about how generous he is and how much he and Yelena do this, that, and the other. And it's very hard to quantify this stuff and to know how much of it is real, how much of it uh, actually makes a difference in the rest of it. But I don't think you can say that he's not making an effort, put it that way. No, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, fair play to him. I don't think you know, there's a lot of people, a lot worse people on this planet than Novak Djokovic. Let's be straight about that. But <laughs> And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, although I, I have a pop at him fairly regularly, I also have a lot of time, obviously I have a lot of time for his tennis. And certain some things he does, are pretty good you, you mm. know but i i don't what what this is not all about is then all his fans suddenly jumping on that as some sort of evidence of how great he is like that's not the discussion to be having right now it, yeah. it's just i find that just a bit much and again that sort of highlights why there's such an unpleasant fan base a lot of the time mm. um in that just leave it just just sort of we can all see it if we you, wanted to see you it. don't have to weaponize it i think is that what yeah. you're trying to say like yeah, it doesn't exactly have to that, be yeah. this big kind of look no chocolate you said he was bad because he did this and actually he's good because he did this i think my point would be um is people are good and bad you know people do good yeah. things and bad things people are very rarely just one thing and i think it's important to remember that so there is lots of good in novak Djokovic, i'm sure i'm not sure stokovsky helped this tribalism by the way but kind by of then, it, yeah. by <laughs> them flagging up saying he'd reached out to Federer and dallin heard nothing so <laughs> right. I, I mean one thing i will say this, this may sound really harsh but i was having a conversation with somebody the other day that like for as james has kind of alluded to there for a man who's like in the infantry during a war, he, he kind of doing quite a bit of social media stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like he's standing out to me, you know, he's had, 
I know he's done a couple of podcasts as well in the last in the last few days. And I'm like, uh, you know, we're kind of getting there where it's like, okay, is this like <laughs> not representative? And in, fa- what and in fairness, do. like I actually think that he would be better off doing that. Like, I don't yeah. know how I don't know how good Sergei Sikovsky is with a rifle. Maybe he's the best shot in Ukraine, but I would suggest that actually he's more use like promoting the cause and talking about it than being on the front line with an assault rifle. But yeah, and know. especially seeing as like, imagine, I don't know whether they have, they stuck all the Ukrainian athletes in one infantry. Cause then I kind of, he's like me a bit out of his depth. Really, if like Vlad and Vitaly Klitschko turning up and Usyk <laughs> and um, Lomachenko. Lomachenko, then some tennis player, like down there. I know it's, I mean, it's bizarre. Is it? And you saw look, I, I I don't mean to have a go because, you know, he's he's put his name forward. And as, as a sort of one of my mates raised the other day, like which which British athletes do we think would do the same um, if if we were in that situation? And I can think of a lot that wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I, yeah. I do, it doesn't bear thinking about, does it? I mean, it's just completely bizarre. Um, yeah. the, the only other, I guess, big kind of U- Ukraine story in tennis, at least, was that Alina Svitolina did eventually play Anastasia Potapova and she did beat her um in a pretty emotional uh victory she was thumping her chest and and you know I, and she, in fairness she went up and shook Potapova's hand and I think you know it was clear this is not about Anastasia Potapova she did not invade Ukraine um but you did kind of feel a bit sorry for her being stuck in the middle of it and as I do for all the Russian players really I, I haven't seen a single one come out in support of the war uh very, most of them have come out and said this is wrong and we don't want to be doing this and we wish our country weren't doing this. So I do feel sorry for them. And while I actually think they probably should have been banned full stop, I, I can see why they haven't. So, um, yeah, it's it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, Svitolina went on to lose to Maria Osor- Camilla Osorio, I should say, uh, in Monterey, who went all the way to the final. See that seamless segue from war into tennis? No one can do that. Get me on Radio 4. Uh, but Osorio was beaten in the final by Leila Annie Fernandez. She won her second WTA title. It was a pretty remarkable match. I don't know what it is about Mexico, but it always seems to throw up matches that just strange things happen. Uh, it was juice in a crucial game in the third set when the lights flickered. Fernandez lost the point. It was match point Osorio, and there was a huge electrical failure basically in the stadium. So... It wasn't complete, but a number of the floodlights went out. There was a 10-minute delay. Uh, Fernandez ended up saving five match points in all, uh, which is quite remarkable, before taking the title, uh, gutting for Osorio, who really is one of the players to watch in the women's game. I'm pretty sure she'll be top 20 in the next six months or so. She's flying up the rankings at a rate of knots. She's up to 35 already. Uh, She's just turned 20. George, a very decent title for... Leila Fernandez. I mean, she's obviously had a bit of a tough time since the US Open. I think she's only won maybe three matches before this tournament and, and lost three as well. So good to see her back. I mean, she's someone we think has got uh, probably another slam final in her at least. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the interesting, I suppose, from a British perspective question now is how, how do these two careers go? Because Fernandez obviously lost on that day but will emma now struggle to kind of make her career as as good as fernandez's may go on to be it'll be interesting Mm. to see i'm sure both of them will be brilliant players but maybe fernandez is going to have a little bit more success over the next two years despite emma's fast start 
It's interesting. I was going to ask you, Calvin, from a sort of coaching perspective, because when, and we've seen it with Raducanu and we've talked about it, but when a player makes this kind of jump to a new level and they're all of a sudden playing a different level of tournament, different type of player, in that adjustment period, you know, A, is there a big adjustment period or is it just, you're just still going to work? And B, what do you have to change? Do you have to reset the way you work? Do you have to change things or do you actually try and keep things as similar as possible because that's what's got you there? Yeah, I think it's the latter because it's basically that they're not playing against better players all the time. They're just playing against them more regularly. Mm. And I think that, that that's the that's the thing to understand that. But I guess with, with the exception of that one tournament, again, it's similar with Radicanu and Fernandez. They're both on a nice pathway, but then one tournament skyrocketed them further up that pathway but since then we've kind of just gone back to where they were on that pathway before that and yeah. I think that's that that's really what we've seen since then and she, you know it's interesting that Fernandez won this tournament last year didn't she mm. so we're kind of like where where we were I guess and as a coach is it kind of your job to to keep to keep things similar because you don't want too much to change I know you're trying to make progress forward but I imagine you know, regularity is quite good in terms of working with a player. You want things to feel similar at week in, week out, don't you? Yeah, to a degree, yeah. And then just it's just a case of managing expectations, both upwards and downwards, I, I think. Not not letting them set in a comfort zone of like, this is quite nice, isn't it? Keep pushing on, but also not expecting to make finals of Grand Slams all the time mm. because, you, because you've just made one. And, and I think, yeah, that's why I think it's it's quite unique with those two that, that they haven't followed the the same pathway that that you'd normally follow to a grand slam of basically a couple of second a couple of second weeks maybe a quarter final and then getting there it was mm. from from nowhere both of them are in a final mm. and one of them won it um one to watch as i say i know people who listen to the podcast regularly will have heard me say the name well you may have heard me say the name maria camilio osorio serrano which is her full name but she has changed to the shortened version of Camilla Osorio this year, for which I'm eternally grateful because it makes my life a lot easier. She She's Colombian. Um, she has taken some pretty big scalps in Grand Slams already uh, over the last 12 months. And, and I'm sure, as I say, will be a seed at a slam uh, near you very, very soon. She's got good power. She's a pretty robust looking 20 year old, to say the least. Um, but she's got good skills as well. And I watched... Um, some of the best bits from from that match against Fernandez, and you know Fernandez is not an easy player to beat, and you do need to be skillful to beat her, and she got extremely close to doing so for what would have been her first WTA title. So, um, yes, a name to remember, I think. Uh, I know that we said we would talk about Roger Federer, but I fear we are running out of time. George, if I say that you can't say the name Roger Federer, do you have any other business? No, he was the only thing I was vaguely interested in talking about. Otherwise, I guess I can you can see the cogs sentence. whirring in the Belshaw brain there as he desperately tried to avoid saying his name. Um, I, can, uh, I can do it in one sentence. That okay, go. Probably not going to play Wimbledon. Says late summer, which people probably think is going to be the US Open, but reality is he's just going to play the Labour Cup. I reckon that's my okay. prediction. Excellent. We will um, go into that maybe a bit more in depth next week because there will be. Uh, a lot more to drill down into, I'm sure. Thank you, as always, for listening. Do leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's particularly important at the moment for reasons I won't go into, but it would be great if you can wherever you do. Do share us on Twitter as well. Uh, follow us at Love Tennis Pod and all of the different social media networks. Just tell everyone, tell all your friends about the Love Tennis Podcast, and most importantly, come back next week. 
Podcast Network.